इंडिया पाकिस्तान वॉर ऑफ 1971, हीरोइक टेल्स ऑफ द बांग्लादेश मुक्ति संग्राम बर्थ ऑफ अ नेशन ओरिजिनल कॉन्सेप्ट रिटायर्ड मेजर जनरल नितिन गडकरी राइटर्स ब्रिगेडियर जसबीर बाबा दीपश्री करंदीकर वॉइस दीपश्री करंदीकर श्रुति इनामदार शैलेश मापणकर एंड सागर नाईक म्युझिक अमित पाटील रेकॉर्डिंग अँड पब्लिशिंग झनकार स्टुडिओ पुणे लेट्स लिसन टू एपिसोड थ्री ब्रेवरी स्टोरीज ऑफ इंडियन नेव्ही अँड इंडियन एअरफोर्स इन नाईन्टीन सेव्हन्टी वन वॉर अँड डे डॉन्ट इट वॉज थर्ड डिसेंबर द बिगिनिंग ऑफ द एंड Our armed rebellion had been going on continuously since 26th March but now India was our ally in this war our freedom struggle had reached the last stage we started moving on with the indian army one step at a time so it was not as if everything changed with a flash of lightning we could at that time observe the indian military up close army navy and air force all departments together fought this war one reason our freedom struggle was extraordinary can be found here on one side those who were supposedly ours were fighting against us and on the other hand our erstwhile enemy had bonded with us and was fighting for us how ironic that's why i always maintain that all of us must understand the army before saying anything against it we should not just know of their achievements but absorb them in their entirety in the last episode we learnt a bit about war strategy it was clear what challenges lay in front of the army in fact all that had been studied measures to face the challenges were determined all actual department heads of all branches of the army were involved in this planning now the major challenge how to implement this plan the more brilliant a scheme the more demanding its challenges and the more demanding the challenges the more dazzling are the stories of overcoming those challenges interestingly these challenges were not thrown our way only from the enemy land the war had spread over the seas and air too what were the challenges how were they encountered how were those challenges overcome in this part let us listen to some heroic tales of the indian air force and navy in the war of 1971 indian navy's finest hour Naval operations in the West, in the Arabian Sea. We will indeed go on to the exciting sequence of operational actions. But before that, what resources did both the nations have? Well, let us talk about India first. India had a naval fleet of 26 ships, including one cruiser, three destroyers, 12 frigates, two submarines and eight missile boats. As for Pakistan their fleet was comparatively meager with only 15 ships but wait they had an edge in submarines because they had two subs 
complemented by six midgets as compared to India's two. Of course, the huge outnumbering for frigates as in 12 is to 1 and for missile boats as in 8 is to 0 was a factor that would go on to play the most critical role in the ensuing battle. When we compare this force to the naval actions in the 1965 war, the offensive capability and intent of the Indian Navy cannot be more evident. The guilt of suffering a minor hit in 1965 and then being left out of battle unceremoniously was decidedly a setback. And that is what made the Navy see red. It was their resolve to take the battle into the enemy's citadel and hit it hard this time. Just as the intelligence collection was gathering pace, simulations, war games, new tactics and strategies were being undertaken and practiced resolutely, aggressively and rigorously. Operation Trident The first operation launched in the western seaboard was Operation Trident. In fact, given the resources and our offensive intent, it was primarily the geography as also the operational situation which influenced naval operations. Pakistan launched preemptive attacks on the Indian airfields on 3rd of December 1971 and that is when hostilities commenced. This was the impetus for which the Indian Navy was waiting, sort of. It immediately got into action for establishing sea control on the western seaboard. So what was the logic? We'll need to look a bit into Pakistan's geography here. In 1971, East and West Pakistan were separate geographical entities split only by the Indian landmass of about 3,000 kilometers. Now, the only way the western region could support the east was through the sea route around the Indian peninsula. That's why it was extremely crucial for the Indian Navy to go for the jugular. The exclusive twofold mission of the fleet was 1. Search and destroy Pakistan naval ships, submarines and aircraft operating in the Arabian Sea. And two, to ruthlessly choke the supply routes from West Pakistan, resulting into a complete blockade of Karachi. Thanks to Russia, India had recently acquired the very potent OSA-class missile boats. What's more, the crew was trained under tough conditions as described by Admiral Bangara, who was the executive officer of one of the missile boats. He says, The crew had trained together for eight months in Russia, braving severe Russian winters, uncomfortable lodging and indifferent food. But the tough conditions and hard training made them bond into a close-knit team, which was hugely motivated and rearing to go into battle. Nothing was impossible for them. For the Russians, the missile boats were a defensive platform. They used them to defend their harbours. Well, we had other plans. The lethality and high speeds of these boats assigned to the 25 missile vessel squadron suited the Indian Navy's aggressive intent just perfect. The small radar cross-section precluded easy detection, which was a crucial element for creating surprise. Three ports were relevant for the operations. The first one was Mumbai. This is where the headquarters of Indian Navy's Western Naval Command were located. The second was Okha, situated on the northern coast of Gujarat. This was the forward naval base of Indian Navy. 
Needless to say, the third important port was Karachi, West Pakistan, the economic hub, the commercial hub, and the headquarters of the Pakistan Navy. That is where their entire naval fleet was based. Now, the range and endurance of the OSA class missile boats was approximately 500 kilometers. But the distance between Karachi and Mumbai was a huge 1,100 kilometers. No chance then that the operation could be launched from Mumbai. Okha was next for consideration and an innovative solution was brought up. The missile boats were towed and pre-positioned at Okha and that suddenly reduced the distance to approximately 200 nautical miles only. Now Karachi Harbour was within reach for launching Operation Trident. When hostilities commenced, Pakistan placed restrictions between dusk to dawn on all merchant ships from closing to less than 75 nautical miles or 140 kilometers from Karachi Harbour. Interestingly, for the Indian Navy, this proved a blessing. It simply meant that any unit detected within this arc from dusk to dawn must be a Pakistani naval vessel on patrol. This was a significant development. Coupled with the limited capacity of the Pakistani Air Force to engage targets at night, this factor impacted the actual planning for Operation Trident, time to be delivered in dark hours. The scheduled night arrived as it was destined to. In the pitch dark night of 4th December 1971, the elegant but stealthy missile boats Nipat, Nirghat and Veer, accompanied by PTR-class anti-submarine warfare frigates Kachal and Giltar, set course for Karachi Harbour. It was a must to continue hugging the Saurashtra coast and maintain strict radio silence and control on electronic transmissions. Even after the battle was joined, essential communication was only in Russian. Once the killer machinery reached within 75 nautical miles from Karachi, the boats positioned themselves for attack and were ready for the kill. With its first target in sight, INS Nirghat sped forward in the northwesterly direction and fired a Styx missile at the destroyer PNS Khyber. The missile hit the right side of the ship at 10.45 pm Pakistan time. The chaos was not just explosive, it was unprecedented. What's more, the signal sent to the Park Naval Headquarters gave them wrong coordinates of the ship's position. This confusion further delayed their rescue teams from reaching the location. Needless to say, INS Nirghat fired her second missile, eventually sinking Khyber and killing 222 sailors. Following suit, INS Nipat verified two targets in the area northwest of Karachi at 11 pm. INS Nipat fired two missiles, one each at the cargo vessel MV Venus Challenger and its escort ship PNS Shahjah. Venus Challenger, who was carrying ammunition, exploded immediately while Shahjah was badly damaged. That was not all though. At 11.20 pm, INS Veer targeted minesweeper PNS Muhafiz and sank it, killing 33 sailors on board. In the meantime, INS Nipat continued towards Karachi and sought permission to target the Kemari oil storage tanks. On obtaining permission, it fired two missiles on the tanks. Although one missile misfired, 
the other hit the oil tanks which were set ablaze and destroyed operation trident had dealt a crushing blow and was a resounding success so incredible was the operation at sea on the 4th of december that the day continues to be celebrated as navy day even today pakistan was obviously not taking it lying down in retaliation of operation trident pakistani air force bombed the okha harbor and they did score direct hits on fueling facilities for missile boats and ammunition dump and the missile boat jetty thankfully the navy had anticipated this attack and had already moved some facilities to other locations however the destruction of a special fuel tank prevented any further incursions until operation python was executed 4 days later operation python meanwhile the rest of the fleet set sail in the northwesterly direction towards the middle of the sea INS Betwa of the fleet was equipped with a radar with the longest range Captain SS Sethi was the navigating officer He narrates how they picked up a Pakistani aircraft tracking them from behind In response the fleet commander broke his 13 ships into smaller groups and changed track to south and southwest This kind of intelligent maneuvering thereafter ensured that the fleet was never detected till the end of the war. Still, no time to rest. The next phase of the war was right ahead of India with three objectives. INS Trishul and Talwar would escort the missile boat Vinash for a second missile attack on Karachi. Simultaneously, the cruiser Mysore with frigates Betwa and Ranjit would carry out diversionary strikes on other minor ports along the coast of Makran. For contraband control, the tanker INS Deepak and corvette Kadmat were deployed. In fact, the attack was scheduled on the 7th, but inclement weather put a dampener and the attack had to be postponed to the next night. On the 8th of December 1971 the ships advanced for their respective objectives Karachi strike group which consisted of INS Vinash Talwar and Trishul proceeded to execute the attack In the previous operation Trident the missile boats had hit Karachi from the southeast while now the attack came from the southwest and this misled the Pakistan defenses completely This strike group detected some electronic transmissions from an enemy intelligence ship masquerading as a trawler. Perhaps it meant that their position had been compromised. There was no time to procrastinate. Trishul immediately homed on and destroyed the ship before closing again in the formation. At about 11 at night, the ships were close enough and launched their missiles just as planned. The destruction that followed left the Kiamari oil field further damaged. It suffered a raging fire for another full week. As for ships, Pakistan Navy's tanker PNS Dakka and merchant ship Hermit sustained heavy damages. Another merchant ship Gulf Star was sunk. The success of this operation was beyond imagination. The testament was found in the fact that Karachi had been completely strangulated subsequently in the event that indian navy chose to strike again
Pakistan Navy removed all ammunition and fuel on board its ships and recalled them to harbor in order to limit the damage. This was unprecedented in the annals of naval warfare. What's more, Operation Python, which consisted of the second missile attack from a southwest redirection with a simultaneous diversionary strike on the Makran coast and effective contraband control, completely sealed the fate of Pakistan Navy in the Arabian Sea. The Kiamari group also captured a merchant ship, Madhumati, and brought it to Bombay on return. While seeking Pakistani ships, even INS Kadmat captured a dho heading for Karachi. And this dho was carrying gold worth rupees 65 lakhs from Dubai, along with other contraband. Needless to say, the gold was returned to the ruler of Dubai as a goodwill gesture after the war. Further south, off the coast of Kerala, Indian naval ship Godavari captured another Pakistan merchant ship, Pasni, which was carrying contraband items to East Pakistan. Well, these collateral catches were worth something too. INS Kukri The story of the naval war in the West would be incomplete without mentioning the tragic episode of sinking of INS Khukri. The ship, along with INS Kirpan, was hunting for the three Pakistani Daphne-class submarines that were supposedly lurking off the coast of Saurashtra. The inherent disadvantage of a lesser sonar range did not deter the ships in undertaking this daunting task. Unfortunately, on the night of 9th December, INS Kukri was detected by the Pakistani submarine Hangor and it was fired upon. Commodore S.N. Singh, who was on board, recounts the tragic event. I reported to INS Kukri as a young midshipman on 26 November, just a week before the war. That night, I was on the first watch and was on the bridge. Captain Mullah was on his chair and discussing the operations of a modified sonar with the ship's executive officer and a scientist from Bark who had done the modification. Suddenly, there was a massive explosion in the water under the ship. Captain Mullah dispatched the officers to ascertain what had happened. Meanwhile, the ship started listing to starboard and then the stern started to go down. Crew members started falling into the water from the starboard side. Captain Mullah appeared unperturbed and was coaxing the crews to jump off and save themselves. He was still on his chair, but standing now because of the listing of the ship. He continued to instruct sailors to get their life jackets and jump off. I could see that he was injured and bleeding from the head. He supervised the evacuation without losing his calm. Soon the water came up to the bridge and I walked into the sea along with many other sailors. We were later picked up by INS Kirpan. The torpedo that stuck the ship had caused fatal damage. Captain Mullah evaluated the situation and ordered abandonment of the ship. He supervised the evacuation without losing his calm. He even offered his own life jacket to a sailor 
and refused to abandon the ship till all men were evacuated. Although injured and bleeding, the selfless and valiant captain focused on ensuring that his men were safely evacuated. In keeping with the highest naval tradition, Captain Mullah went down with his ship after helping several crew members escape the raging inferno. He lived up to the glorious traditions of the Navy. The captain is always the last person to abandon the ship. For his extraordinary courage, leadership and supreme sacrifice, the nation's second highest gallantry award and the Navy's first Mahavir Chakra was posthumously conferred upon Captain Mullah. What a tragic loss. In these 10 days, however, the Navy had struck a decisive blow to the war-waging ability of Pakistan. Pakistan's Navy had been literally crippled and Karachi had been utterly strangulated. In addition, the Western fleet had established absolute sea control in the Arabian Sea, ensuring safety of its own ports and freedom of our own supply routes. Operations in the East So long for the operations in the West. Let us now turn our attention to operations on the Eastern seaboard. The Eastern Fleet was formed as little as the 1st of November 1971 and based at Vishakhapatnam. The Eastern Fleet boasted of INS Vikrant, the majestic aircraft carrier along with its complement of Seahawks and Ellie's aircraft as also Alouette helicopters which operated off her deck. The Seahawks carried anti-ship rockets that could have a devastating effect. The Ellie's were literally multitaskers. They could carry not just rockets but also drop thousand-pound bombs, drop death charges, lay mines, provide radar piques and carry out medium-range reiki. Not to be outdone, Alouette helicopters were the best platform for conducting search and rescue operations. It is interesting to know that at the time of conception of Eastern Fleet, INS Vikrant was already at Vishakhapatnam where it was undergoing maintenance and minor refits. It was meant to be part of the Eastern Fleet. The fleet also constituted the frigates INS Brahmaputra, INS Bees, INS Karmota and Kavarati, the destroyer INS Rajput and landing sheep's tank INS Mugger, Guldar and Gharial. The task allotted to the fleet had a varied range. Seek and destroy enemy naval units, destroy enemy bases, create a complete blockade of East Pakistan and establish contraband control. Not to be left behind this time, Pakistan Navy, on the other hand, had deployed her most potent and silent killer, the submarine PNS Ghazi, to target the aircraft carrier. Pakistan also launched four other ships, namely PNS Raj Shahi, Silhet, Komila and Jessor along with the numerous small gunboats and three Daphne-class submarines to protect the ports of East Pakistan. On the positive side, however, in the wake of Pakistan Army's brutal military crackdown called Operation Searchlight, the Bengalis were determined to fight for liberation 
and were willing to be trained in guerrilla warfare. Accordingly, the then Director of Naval Intelligence, Captain Mihir Roy and Admiral Nanda orchestrated the training of hundreds of naval commandos from the ranks of East Bengali freedom fighters at a secret facility in Plassey on the banks of the river Bhagirathi. Furthermore, pained by the atrocities being committed on their fellow Bengalis, Eight Bengali submariners assigned to a Pakistani submarine docked in France defected to India with the help of Indian diplomats. Their arrival met with a great relief and joy since they were already trained. Not just that, they were made the leaders of Operation X as it was named. Commander Vijay Kapil, a diver who was an instructor at the diving school of Western Naval Command, was chosen to train these Mukti Bahini commandos. As narrated by Commander Kapil, and I quote, We picked up young, feet and educated boys in the age group of 15 to 22 years. They were put through a hard training regimen of three weeks. Training was tough, but I must say they were eager learners and hugely motivated. Once unleashed, they went about their task with vengeance. Our targets were Narayanganj, Chandpur, Khulna, Chalna, Mangla and Chittagong harbours. In July 71, we were told to select the best of our trainees for immediate deployment. The commando's operation was given the codename Operation Jackpot. Its first salvo was on 14th and 15th of August 1971 and how grand it turned out to be. This first salvo resulted in the blowing up of ships, port vessels and port infrastructure vital to the Pakistan military. What's more, between August and December 1971, the 457 Mukti Bahini naval commandos destroyed over 10,000 tons of shipping in the sea and rivers of East Pakistan. The huge debris disrupted shipping while relentless sabotage by them kept merchant ships away, leaving Pakistani troops utterly demoralized and woefully short of vessels to sustain their war efforts in the East. Remember the year 2017 famous Bollywood movie, The Ghazi Attack? It portrays a cat and a mouse game being played by two submarines in the Bay of Bengal. Well, this movie was loosely based on the events of 1971. This is a good opportunity to explain to you how the operations actually unfolded. First and foremost, thanks to the planning and clever deployment of ships by the Indian Navy, PNS Ghazi never came close to unleashing herself onto any of the Indian units. Yes, never. We were certain that the Pakistan Navy had deployed her most lethal submarine to neutralize INS Vikrant. A tactical move was meticulously planned by Vice Admiral Krishnan, the then Commander-in-Chief of the Eastern Naval Command. He ordered the majority of the Eastern Fleet, including INS Vikrant, out to the Andaman Islands. Meanwhile, the environment at the harbour was created such that it depicted the Vikran to be at Vishakapatnam. Accordingly, a high demand of ration and heavy operational communication continued to be maintained. The kingpin of this plan was stationed at Vishakapatnam and it was none other than INS Rajput. It successfully masqueraded as INS Vikrant in a move to deceive the Pakistan Navy and lure the Ghazi to her ultimate end. 
do i need to mention that the deception worked and pakistanis fell prey to the master plan they deployed pns ghazi off visakhapatnam harbor a total blackout was ordered hoping that probably the enemy would foolhardy to be on the surface of such a prey in another classic move on the night of the 3rd of december ins rajput was ordered to see to preclude the possibility of any ships crew being caught on the shore during enemy attack rajput sailed out fully knowing that pns ghazi would be lurking around soon the commanding officer of ins rajput appreciated a severe disturbance in water about half a mile ahead of its course he rightly assumed this to be a submarine which is diving so he closed on the position speedily and dropped two depth charges ghazi retracted to deeper waters subsequently it appears that the charges dropped by ins rajput activated the mines led by ghazi and they exploded destroying the submarine along with its crew ghazi was decimated within mere 5 hours of the first strike by pakistan against our airfields simultaneously ins vikrant and her ships were instrumental in sealing the enemy's fate in the bay of bengal if not at visakhapatnam undeterred by the presence of pns ghazi in bay of bengal the vikrant along with her escorts had sailed out from andaman islands on 2nd of december towards cox's bazar and chitagong to carry out air raids on airfields harbors and other military assets of east pakistan on 4th of december at 1100 hours ins vikrant flew off eight seahawks in her first sortie against the enemy Consequently the airfield was severely damaged and the air traffic control at Cox Bazar was set on fire Normally air attacks are carried out at dawn and dusk when the attacking aircraft can see yet are well camouflaged against the dark sky and least vulnerable to anti aircraft fire Therefore it was assumed that Pakistanis would probably not anticipate another attack during the day You can only imagine the surprise element when on the same afternoon in a daring attack the enemy was taken completely unaware and Chittagong was attacked the second time the aircraft went on to damage two pakistani naval gunboats six merchant vessels and also set the fuel dumps ablaze further on the 6th of december air strikes damaged the harbors of mangla chalna and khulna leaving a wake of destruction in its path Even after that raids by aircrafts from Vikrant continue from 9th of December to 13th of December at various military targets in East Pakistan not a single merchant ship was allowed to escape the port finally by the 12th naval activity by Pakistan ceased completely on the 14th the seahawks again struck Chittagong setting fire to several army barracks in the cantonment area the spirit and motivation of the pilots brings to us a glorious trail of exciting stories like this one from commodore bhada he was a part of four seahawks who took off for a rocket attack on an ordinance warehouse in chitagong they were hitting the target at 3 second intervals he was number 4 but when he got to the target did his checks and pressed the trigger for some reason the rockets did not fire while the other three aircraft were on their way back to vikrant commodore bhada decided to take another circuit and address the target again this time he succeeded 
Meanwhile, though, a lot of anxiety shrouded those on board Vikrant and other ships who were tracking the Seahawks. In their eyes, the return sortie showed only three aircraft on the radar. Where was the fourth? They kept wondering. A couple of interesting facts must be noted here. Initial orders to the fleet had envisaged a total of about five aircraft sorties. But before Vikrant left her area of operations, the Navy ended up carrying out close to not 10 or 15, but 100 sorties. Secondly, the Indian Navy has a tradition of painting the names of destroyed targets at a prominent part of a ship to record her kills. The list of targets painted on the side of INS Vikrant, which she and her battle group had destroyed in the 1971 war, includes 11 merchant ships, PNS Silhet, PNS Jessore, and PNS Komilla. Additionally, with air support from INS Vikrant, INS Brahmaputra, Bees, Kamosa, and Kaurati carried out other crucial operations such as anti-submarine, anti-air protection, and sea control. INS Kamosa and INS Kaurati were the latest ships in our inventory and together they provided anti-air and anti-submarine escort to INS Vikrant. Contraband Control As part of contraband control, boarding operations on various merchant vessels were carried out so as to prohibit East Pakistan from receiving any assistance whatsoever. The aircraft that played a major role in controlling contraband was none other than Ali's aircraft of INS Vikrant. As a result, by the time the Eastern Fleet concluded its operations, the Navy had taken a prize of 15 merchant ships. Some were Pakistani ships carrying troops and others were ships working for Pakistan. They were all escorted to Kolkata. For the small naval presence, this was a Herculean task but executed to perfection. So effective was the blockade that in spite of Pakistan's repeated attempts bolstered by the presence of the US 7th Fleet not far away, only one ship, PNS Rajashahi, managed to escape and make its way to Singapore. Though the Eastern Fleet was actively engaged in destroying the enemy, a swift and decisive victory had to be ensured. That's why other operations were launched concurrently in the rivers and backwaters. These were operations that showcased the Navy's absolute dare and valor. One valiant story is that of Force Alpha, which included the INS Panvel, gunboats Padma and Polash, and BSF watercraft Ehitrangada. This was a disparate group assembled from limited resources, but it braved challenges and risked capture by sailing into the backwaters of East Pakistan to carry out raids on Chalna, Khulna and Mangla. This audacious deep penetration strike was led by Commander MNR Samant and must we state that the daring attacks on the enemy's riverine ports were immensely successful? Earlier during the war, the Indian Navy and Air Force had established superiority over their counterparts in East Pakistan. Now, with a strangulating blockade in place, there was no way for the fleeing Pakistani troops to escape except crossing the land border with Burma. Therefore, 
to prevent this escape one battalion of the indian army was to undertake landings at cox's bazar with the help of indian naval ships the operation was aptly codenamed beaver and was undertaken by ins guldar ins gharial and mv vishwavidya on 16 december and a total of 600 army troops of a gurkha battalion were landed at cox's bazar immobilization of all the enemy ships and port facilities and establishment of control over merchant traffic near east pakistan signaled the achievement of complete supremacy of the indian navy in the bay of bengal one submarine and three ships of pakistan navy were sunk in various engagements the indian navy effectively prevented the escape of pakistani troops by the sea route which together with the army and air force operations resulted in the capture of 93000 prisoners of war and surrender of east pakistan shanno varuna meaning the god of seas had blessed the indian navy the indian navy garnered a total of 8 mahavir chakras in this two front war here are the names of those officers captain swaraj prakash captain mahindranath mulla petty officer chiman singh commodore kp gopal rao captain mohan narayan rao samant lieutenant balwant singh and commodore bb yadav we pay a humble respects to each one of these officers actually this war commenced with air strikes you would like to know the admirable performance of the air force in this war won't you of course i will narrate the tales that unfolded in these azure blue skies role of the indian air force in 71 operations on the 3rd of december 71 pakistan air force attacked indian airfields in preemptive strikes in two waves the first strike came on amritsar shrinagar avantipur pathan kot and farid kot alg the second wave came on the night between 3rd and 4th of december and it targeted jodhpur jaisalmer uttarlai bhuj agra sirsa and halwara however we were expecting this and so we were prepared no aircraft was destroyed the only damage was to the runways which was repaired in a matter of hours that notwithstanding the preemptive aggression by pakistan was a declaration of war throughout the conflict in which the indian strategy was to maintain basically defensive postures on the western and northern fronts whilst placing emphasis on a lightning campaign in the east the iaf established a highly credible serviceability rate which exceeded 80% throughout the mission emphasis was on interdiction in the west the iaf's primary tasks were disruption of enemy communications destruction of fuel and ammunition reserves and prevention of any ground force concentrations so that no major offensive could be mounted against india while indian air forces were primarily engaged in the east air force in the west let us see the role of the indian air force in the west first of all india had 24 squadrons which at a conservative estimate would amount to approximately 350 aircraft while pakistan had 14 squadrons 
or about 240 aircraft however the park air force was far superior in terms of technology and quality with a healthy mix of the two latest fighters f86 saber jets and mirage 4 on the other hand our frontline fighter the mig 21 did not even have night fighting capability the indian air force however adapted well and quickly learned how to use moonlight to our advantage our aircraft may have lacked in quality but we more than made up with the skill of our pilots and superior numbers on the night after the preemptive indian canberra's mounted 23 attacks on their airfields at murid mianwali sargodha chander raiwala shahkot and masrur near karachi however Pakistan was prepared because they expected us to counter and appreciated a full scale attack on all the Pakistani airfields quite like what we had done during 1965 they were mistaken though instead of a reactionary counter offensive our strategy in the west focused on a calibrated response to Pakistan air force and hit them as per a pre-planned design This was in keeping with the overall military strategy of offensive defense in the west and a blitzkrieg offensive into east Pakistan. For example, some of the attacks that went in had only four and often only two aircraft and not a half squadron in one go because we fully understood that the more we expose the more would be the chances of aircraft casualties. What we did instead is that we went in small pockets hitting them as per our design the iaf kept targeting their important strategic assets and selected airfields consistently through the war and as the sorties they could mount dwindled it was proven that they were hit hard to be precise pakistan air force flew 150 sorties on the first day and by the 10th of december those reduced to a dismal number of not more than 15 per day in other words this was a suitable and well planned response to the preemptive which paid us very heavy dividends come to think of it the indian air force relied on five different types of missions during the war in the western theater firstly air defense and counter air primarily to protect our own air assets and armament airfields to prevent the enemy from interdicting our assets and to bring down his aircraft the second mission we had was the interdiction missions which went deep inside enemy territory to hit their important strategic assets and cripple their war waging capability the next mission up our sleeve was the all important close air support to provide immediate air support to troops fighting the ground battle honestly for ground battles as in longewala these were the real game changers the next in line were the reconnaissance missions that were meant to pinpoint and pick up suspected targets the final was maritime missions in support of the indian navy with due respect Pakistan also flew similar missions but their number of sorties was as low as approximately 3000 as compared to 4500 of India Furthermore their ratio of air defense and counter air operations was close to 70% as against 46% of India In fact 
after the preemptive of 3rd of December the Pakistani mindset had been so defensive that 70% of their air effort was used for guarding their own skies their ratio of close air support and interdiction speaks for itself actually it was only 17% as compared to india's 43% What these numbers underline is that the Indian Air Force was far more aggressive in its posture, intent and execution. This offensive strategy tilted the scales heavily in our favor despite the technically superior and latest aircraft that Pakistan threw at us. With our bold and offensive air strategy, which was a welcome departure from that during the 1965 war, we were able to inflict far more damage to pakistani assets than they could interdiction or strategic strikes by indian air force here it is pertinent to put in a word about the highly successful strategic strikes undertaken by the air force the indian air force bombed pakistan's oil installations at karachi and set them ablaze on 4th of december which was in sync with the naval operations On the 5th of December the air force hit Mangala dam which is a vital asset and the biggest dam in Pakistan actually Mangala generates the bulk of Pakistan's power and has the biggest water reservoir as well now this dam was partially damaged and that caused massive power interruptions across Pakistan for days on end on 7th the bombing of a target of strategic importance The oil refinery at Rawalpindi was also executed. It was so successful that the refinery had to be shut down further debilitating Pakistan's war waging capacity. Even as the oil installations at Karachi were still ablaze after being hit by the navy and the air force on the 4th, they were bombed yet again by the IAF on the 8th in conjunction with the naval operation Python. Evidently the raging fire made them easily recognizable targets both for the navy and the air force. On 14th the air force further attacked the Sui gas plant in northern Sindh which was partially destroyed. And then it was bombed yet again on the 15th severely damaging its cooling plant. Interestingly this bombing was carried out by transport aircraft the AN12 some of which had been modified to drop bombs. close air support the day of 3rd of december brought home news from our sources that pakistan was preparing to attack and their forces were in the changamanga forest near lahore changamanga was also a huge logistic facility which housed one of the biggest ammunition and fol dumps a daring raid led by wing commander vb vashisht was planned Changamanga was bombed by two transport aircraft the AN12 which had been modified as bombers they hit their targets with accuracy causing destruction and havoc way beyond proportion consequently no ammunition could be sent for their fighting formations deployed north of lahore this turned out to be among the most successful strikes by the air force It caused large scale destruction that eventually starved the fighting formations of ammunition and fuel thereby severely denuding their combat potential. Wing commander VB Vashisht was awarded the Mahavir Chakra for his gallant action. It is the same battle of Longewala that has been immortalized in the movie Border. 
it sure gave goosebumps to all those who watched the epic of course it was rather dramatic in its filmy reconstruction but it did showcase the true fight put up by troops on ground till the arrival of the air force on the morning of 5th of december pakistan launched an attack on our post at longewala in the rajasthan sector on the night of 4th of december it was a fierce attack led by their tanks our post was held by a company of 23 punjab under the command of major chandpuri though outgunned and outnumbered the spirits were intact the gallant men were led by the brave major to stick on and fight they managed to hold the fort till the time when at daybreak the air force responded in full measure to sos calls by the army on the 5th of december at the break of dawn 122 squadron of the indian air force let loose its hunter aircraft on the attacking pakistani armor they were easily identifiable and soft targets anyway on that day the pakistanis suffered their worst ever decimation of tanks at the hand of our air force by midday the hunters had knocked out as many as 12 tanks of the enemy however the battle raged on and by the 7th of december pakistan had suffered the destruction of many tanks while quite a few were severely damaged eventually the pakistani armor was subjected to such relentless and accurate strikes that their attacks were stalled and the armored brigade of pakistan ceased to be an effective force air defense and counter air as far as the air force is concerned the iaf acquitted itself creditably in counter air operations during the war both the nats and mig 21 aircraft proved versatile in air to air combat In fact the air war started on 22nd of November when three Pakistani Sabre jets intruded into our air space in the Bayora salient near Kolkata and were shot down by our nats Let us not talk about that now though we'll pick that up when we go to the east However it wouldn't be inappropriate to cite the most heroic and classic example of counter air and air defense here Yes, I'm talking about the air-to-air combat between six Pakistani sabers and the lone Indian nat flown by the Valiant Flying Officer Nirmal Jeet Singh Sekhon. He was a fighter pilot on detachment to Srinagar for the air defense of the valley against Pakistani air attacks. Right from the outbreak of hostilities, he and his colleagues continued to fight successive waves of intruding Pakistani aircraft with unmatched valor and determination. On 14th of December, Srinagar airfield was attacked by a wave of enemy saber jets. Immediately, six enemy aircraft were overhead and they began bombing and staffing the airfield. At that time, flying officer Sekha was on runway readiness duty. In spite of the mortal danger of attempting to take off during the attack, Sekha decided to take off and immediately engaged a pair of attacking sabers. In the fight that ensued he secured two hits bringing down one aircraft and seriously damaging the other by this time the other four aircraft came to the aid of their hard pressed companions flying officer sekhon was again outnumbered this time by 4 to 1 even though alone flying officer sekhon engaged the enemy in an evidently unequal combat the fight took them to the tree top level and he almost held his own but was eventually overcome by the sheer weight of numbers 
His aircraft was shot down by gunfire of one of those sabers and he was killed. The lone Indian Nat which was many notches inferior to the Paki sabers was piloted by an exceptionally skillful and fiercely brave Sekhaw who by sheer dint of determination dared to give the intruders a run for their money. The sublime heroism, supreme gallantry, flying skill and determination above and beyond the call of duty displayed by flying officer Sekhaw in the face of certain death earned him the nation's highest gallantry award the paramvir chakra posthumously indian air force in support of the indian navy the karachi airfield was raided on the night of 3rd and 4th december by four canberra aircrafts on the 4th morning this attack was followed up by three hunters that hit karachi airfield causing extensive damage to their air assets in fact six of the aircraft were destroyed on the ground these raids paralyzed pakistan's air defense squadron deployed at karachi air base thus facilitating operation trident which constituted of missile boat attacks by the navy 3 hours later two waves of canberras followed up by bombing the oil facilities at karachi the oil facilities were set ablaze and became easily recognizable targets evidently this was a major success the navy was also provided a cap that is combat air patrol by hunter aircraft of the indian air force a little before the midnight of 4th december a super constellation aircraft was launched by the air force as a search operation for any merchant shipping from karachi towards east pakistan similar missions were launched throughout the war which went on to assist the naval blockade on the western seaboard whenever required by the navy such missions were also launched for search and rescue operations A total of 86 very helpful sorties were flown by Indian Air Force in support of the Indian Navy in the Western Theater. Air Force actions in the East. On the Eastern Front, the Indian forces launched a sophisticated campaign in which the Indian Air Force's task was primarily direct support of the ground forces. The campaign included rapid moving infantry and armor advancing from three directions airborne and heliborne assaults missile bombardments from ships and on amphibious landing quite a massive and all out offensive wasn't it the indian air force had good reason for satisfaction with its performance during the december 1971 conflict Although Pakistan had initiated the war with preemptive air strikes against major forward air bases the Indian Air Force rapidly gained ground and had hereafter dominated the skies over both fronts Admittedly there had to be war losses but the Indian Air Force flew many more sorties than its opponent with interdiction missions predominating and the bulk of the services attrition was the unfortunate result of intensive anti aircraft fire nonetheless in aerial combat the indian air force proved its superiority in no uncertain manner 
the supersonic fighters mig 21 flown by professionals were to shortly demonstrate their superiority because six squadrons of mig 21 fls were very much a part of the indian air force order of battle participating in operations both in eastern and western sectors three mig 21 squadrons operating from guwahati and tezpur took part in counter air escort and close air support tasks during the war in the east that the mig 21 was highly effective in short range precision attacks was amply demonstrated during the attacks with 500 kg bombs on the pakistan air forces air bases at tezgaon and kurmitola while pinpoint 57 mm rocket attacks were carried out against key command centers in the capital dhaka itself in the east indian air force had deployed 10 squadrons four for air defense and counter air and six were reserved for the strike role and this was against one squadron of f86 saber jets of pakistan air force the pakistan air force also had three rt33 aircraft at tezgaon in addition to a few light helicopters it is more than obvious that the air resources were usually tilted in favor of indian air force the f86 aircraft of their only squadron could operate over a number of airfields the most likely being kurmitola and tezgaon in dhaka area and others being chittagong and jessore so these airfields were adequately addressed by indian air force in addition air strips at barisal and rangpur were also bombed to prevent operations by the park transport aircraft and sabers which could relocate between these bases in the event of their mother base being bombed all in all a lot of ground had to be covered the indian air forces task gaining control of the air and neutralizing this one squadron of f86 was not as straightforward as it would seem on 22nd november the indian air force managed to intercept a formation of three sabers in the boira salient near calcutta four nats and the indian air force engaged them in air to air combat and shot down all of them two pilots who had to eject over indian territory were captured even though the declaration of war was to come later this was an excellent start to air operations eventually in response to pakistan's preemptive on 3rd december the indian air force started the air war in east with canberras of 16 squadron bombing the airfields at chittagong jessore kumritola and narayanganj on the night of 3rd and 4th december however the honor of initiating the air war goes to mukti bahini air force their lone otter aircraft and alouette helicopter attacked the oil installations at narayanganj and chittagong and set them ablaze fourth morning onwards airfield attacks were launched by hunters and sukhoi 7 aircraft while mig 21 provided the escorts On 4 December a total of 109 sorties were flown for counter air. What's more, the Canberras bombed the airfields in five raids once again that night. In Tau, on 5th morning, the air force pressed into service eight MiG-21s 
with 500 kg bombs on Tezgaon and Kurmitola airfields. These strikes catered the runways whereby the Pakistani air force was successfully grounded. So much damage was done that the Pakistan air force could simply not operate from East Pakistan thereafter. This also gave 18 Seahawks and four Ellis aircraft from INS Vikrant the freedom to attack targets along the coastal areas and ports of Cox's Bazar and Chittagong. However, all the Pakistani air force sabers were not yet destroyed. Therefore, to sustain this control, airfield strikes had to continue till the 12th of December. As per the planned objectives, the Indian Air Force achieved total control of the air. This is what enabled the subsequent lightning offensive, resulting in the fall of Dhaka on the 15th of December. A word about counter-surface force operations is pertinent here. General Jacob, the chief of staff of Army's Eastern Command, had this to say, and I quote: "Due to fast-moving battles and bypassing tactics, we used air support mainly for interdiction, isolation of the battlefield, and prevention of movement along the river bank of Dhaka." Close air support for ground targets was initially very little but the interdiction effort was very credible. In fact, our major problem was full utilization of close air support sorties. So we made up by switching from one sector to another. Since the Pakistan Air Force was now completely grounded, there was more than adequate air support available for the army. The then air chief Air Chief Marshal P.C. Lal went on to say that it was the complete command of air without any danger of the Pakistan Air Force interfering with ground operations that enabled our army to move as freely as it did. War on the ground and air commenced simultaneously because of the time factor. The army did not wait for the Indian Air Force to achieve command of the air, owing to its. overwhelming numerical superiority the indian air force was confident that it would provide the army as much offensive air support as it needed even while achieving quick control of air in 36 hours the indian air force attained command of the air subsequently it released additional squadrons both from the counter air and air defense roles for close support of the army Nearly all air defense squadrons of MiG-21 and Nats were now given the role of offensive air support for the army. They were actually multitasking between sorties. From this stage onwards, 60% of the air effort was in close support of the army. Now, the army could operate without worrying about the enemy's air force. Most of the times, the air support aircraft would orbit in the air. on the prowl for any resistance to ground troops they could provide aerial firepower in a matter of minutes the forward air controllers were very effective as they operated from helicopters krishak aircraft of the army aviation and tall buildings the rivers of east pakistan were wide and wild there were only few bridges but unfortunately in a bid to stall the indian offensive Most of those bridges had been destroyed by the Pakistani army. The readily available air support for four corps 
was two MiG squadrons and a flight of hunters. In addition, they had two helicopter units with MI-4 helicopters. Later, two more helicopters from another unit also joined them. Thus, at any given time, they could muster about 12 to 13 helicopters between them. These helicopters were used extensively to heli-lift troops across the rivers. First of all, this facilitated speedy movement. To get across the large number of rivers in East Pakistan, we did not have adequate bridging equipment and that made the heli-lifting very helpful. The heli-lifts also enabled psychological operations by default and helped in deceiving the Pakistanis. The heli-lift of a Gurkha Battalion 4-5 GR by helicopters from Kaila Shahar across the Surma River virtually in full view of Silhet town began late in the afternoon of 7th December. Twelve helicopters carried out 65 sorties, lifting 584 men and 12,500 kilograms of equipment. As expected, the noise of the helicopters and the fact that they continued to land the troops late into the night gave an impression of a very large force having landed. The Pakistanis had a brigade at Silhit and another brigade was rushed rapidly from Malvi Bazar for aid. This Pakistani force spent the rest of the war holding a Heliborn battalion which never launched an attack against them. This wonderful ruse locked up the Pakistanis in an area of really low tactile importance. What's more, it also cleared the way for a battalion's move from Dorky in the north towards Silhit. While the Indian troops were advancing, the biggest heli bridge that took them across was on the Meghna River. The original bridge on the river had been blown by the enemy. To continue the momentum of advance, Indian troops needed to be lifted across the river. For tactile reasons, this had to be done during hours of darkness in a battle zone surrounded by the enemy. The aircraft, especially the helicopters, need to see the runway or the ground while coming into land. It is most essential for the pilot to arrest the rate of descent to a bare minimum, otherwise he might just crash. This problem had to be overcome quickly. Here, the ground support teams rushed to help. They made an H with torchlights. Thus, landing zones were earmarked at four corners of the H, separated by 200 meters, to enable up to four helicopters to land simultaneously. With this trick, on 9th and 10th December, the helicopters ferried some 650 troops and 8,200 kilograms of equipment from Brahman Bazar in the east to Raipur, across the Meghna on its western bank. The air effort was 12 helicopters undertaking 65 sorties. Afterwards, from 11th to 15th December, four MI-4 helicopters flew 164 sorties across the Meghna from Brahman Bazar to Rai Singhri and from Dutkandi to Baidya Bazar and lifted 1,350 fully armed troops with 40,700 kilograms of weapons and equipment. The heli-lift operations, however, 
had their peculiar problems and constraints. To start with, the night landings was a problem in itself. But that was overcome by the handheld torches depicting an H as described earlier. Further, landing close to the enemy had its own obvious risks. Initially, the helicopters carried 14 troops in each lift. This figure increased to 23 by reducing the weight of fuel. So the helicopters were now flying with the risk of a marginal fuel reserve. Damaged helicopters had to be repaired in the field, which was extremely challenging, with minimum facilities that could be rustled. This Herculean helibridge operation was executed by a meagre 10-12 helicopter force. Thanks to a continuous 36-hour long and tedious operation by the crew, resulting in 410 sorties without a single accident, close to 5,000 troops and 51 tons of equipment was heli-lifted by the end of the operation. This was considered as one of the most significant war-winning factors. This heli-bridge enabled four corps to block and surround Dhaka from the north and east and hasten its fall. In order to exert psychological pressure on the Pakistani troops, another innovation was used as well. This ploy utilized the caribou transport aircraft diverted from its primary task of evacuation of casualty and used as a bomber. These caribous would fly at night, well above the enemy's anti-aircraft fire zone, to drop bombs in ones and twos on Pakistani ground troops at Malvi Bazar, Bara Bazar and Lalmai, with a view to keep the enemy awake and constantly tire out its nerves. Needless to say, they proved highly successful in this role. Attack on the Governor's House It is time now to take you to a very interesting operation executed to perfection by the IAF. Dr. Malik, the Governor of East Pakistan, was to chair an important meeting regarding the progress of war on 14th of December at 12 noon at the Circuit House. The news of this meeting reached the IAF a mere 45 minutes before the scheduled time. Speedily responding in the most professional manner, IAF diverted a force of six MiG-21 with rockets for the task. The pilots were briefed on a hurriedly procured tourist map of Dhaka. As they were taxing out, new intelligence inputs pointed to a change in location of the conference venue to the governor's house. This was immediately intimated to the strike leader. Immense credit goes to Wing Commander Bishnoi, the team leader, that his team was able to locate the governor's house in the busy and congested landscape of Dhaka, identify the conference room and then fire the rockets with pinpoint accuracy. The shattering explosion caused by the flying rockets had the desired impact on all those present at the meeting. The unexpectedness of the attack totally crushed their morale and broke the will to continue resisting the might of the Indian military. In the wake of this attack, the entire cabinet decided to resign. This precise strike at the enemy's nerve centre contributed to a decision of overwhelming significance. It impacted Pakistan's decision to surrender and brought the war to an early end. 
an interesting sideline to this attack was that one rocket entered the governor's house through a ventilator and then slid off destroying the underground billiards room ironically that was the place where the governor and his cabinet colleagues would take cover when dhaka sounded its air raid sirens then came the bombing of an ordinance factory producing ammunition at joydepur which was a big blow to the war effort of pakistan it had already been earmarked as an interdiction target and was attacked on the 8th and 9th and then again on the 13th in these attacks apart from the mig 21 hunters and canberras even an 12 transport aircraft were used to increase the weight of the attack and ensure the factory's complete destruction this put a spoke in the wheel for pakistan's ability to produce and supply ammunition to its forces para drop at tangail tangail was an important center approximately 70 kilometers north of dhaka in the central sector between the jamuna and the meghna rivers forces under 101 communication zone were rapidly advancing in the tangail sector the advancing columns had bypassed the town of jamalpur on 9th of december the objective was to capture pungli bridge on the jamalpur tangail road so as to block the retreating pakistani forces and trap them there lest they could reinforce dhaka pakistani positions in other sectors had already been bypassed and cut off from dhaka Therefore the drop was planned north of Tangail. Another reason for choosing Tangail was that the population was friendly and the Mukti Bahini forces operating under Brigadier Siddiqui already had a hold in the area. The battalion group of 2 para comprised of a para field battery of artillery, an engineer platoon, signal and medical detachments. It was expected that the ground forces of 101 area advancing north to south on this approach would take up to 7 days to reach Tangail and link up with 2 para. Time was of essence. The drop was planned for 1600 hours on 11th December, making good use of the light before dusk. Of course, This was possible because the Indian Air Force had attained total command of the air and no opposition whatsoever was likely from the Pakistan Air Force. Based on a photo reconnaissance of 4th of December, a suitable dropping zone of approximately 2.5 square kilometers was selected north of Tangail. Meanwhile, the Indian Air Force assembled a fleet of 22 Dakotas, 20 packets and 6 AN12s. The paratroopers were lifted from Damdam and Kalaikunda for the drop. In addition, two Karibu's aircraft carried out a dummy drop 16 kilometers north of the actual site. A little before the actual drop, two packet aircraft dropped the pathfinders who marked the site in no time. On 11th of December, this transport fleet proceeded for the drop which took just 50 minutes. The main drop commenced with AN12s delivering the heavy loads followed by packets with platform loads and troops. The Dakotas brought up the rest which comprised mostly of troops. On the next day again 40 paratroopers along with more supplies on board 5 Dakotas were dropped. Colonel Pannu the commanding officer of 2 para quickly organized the battalion group and set the trap. 
as expected, Pakistanis launched a series of attacks through the night and the next day. But each of these was beaten back with heavy casualties. Apart from the wounded and disabled, the enemy suffered 223 dead. Ultimately, Brigadier Qadir of the Pakistani army surrendered to two para. This was, in true sense, a game-changer that hastened the fall of Dhaka. This operation was heralded as a classic example of coordination and joint planning by the Army and the Air Force. Indian Air Force in support of the Navy The primary support that the Indian Air Force provided to the Indian Navy in the East was by way of attaining complete air superiority. Because of that, the naval aircraft, which were the Seahawks and Alizes from INS Vikrant, gained the ability to operate freely without any fear of encountering Pakistani air. Air Force hunters bombed the Chittagong airfield on 4th of December and confirmed the absence of Pakistan Air Force aircraft, thereby opening up the airspace for the naval aircraft. For coordination of air operations with naval air, Latitude 22 degree 25 minutes north was decided as a separating boundary. What opened up the airspace for naval aircraft to operate with impunity was the fact that within three days the Pakistani Air Force in East Pakistan was overwhelmed and completely grounded. This perhaps was the biggest contribution of the Indian Air Force and indirect support for the Navy. These are some of the interesting highlights from the pages of the 1971 war. The tales of heroism of the Navy and Air Force. India prevailed victorious in this all-pervasive war. Now, you must have realized that these are not just nice war stories. From the next part onwards, we will listen to some truly heroic tales from the battlefront and we will begin with the Battle of Longewala, a historic golden page from the 1971 war, our finest hour. <laughs> 